Welcome back to another episode of Parker's Pensies. I'm your host, Parker Sedecase, and this is a podcast where we explore all the deepest questions in philosophy, theology, nature, and life. I really love thinking about cool stuff, so come think with me. Uh, as you'll know, if you've seen this podcast before, I love having experts on to help me think about tough stuff. So today, I have with me Dr. Mark Colliven, and we're going to be talking about some of the themes in his, bro- in his book, uh, An Introduction to Philosophy. Philosophy of Mathematics. Man, I'm having a hard time right now. Um, I'm really excited about this because I really love the idea of mathematics. I'm just, I, I was never very good at it. I didn't really apply myself well. And uh, so I love the idea of it and I love like thinking through the philosophy of it, but I'm not very good at it. So uh, hopefully Dr. Colvin uh, can help remedy the situation for me. Before we jump in, I want to thank everyone over on Patreon for making this podcast happen. If you've benefited from this podcast, please consider becoming a Patreon patron. Uh, you can support the show at a bunch of different levels of support, and there's all sorts of benefits that you get at different levels. So go check the link in the description wherever you're listening to this podcast at, and you can see all sorts of different benefits and ways to support the show. Another way is uh, if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, you can leave me a five-star review and a comment. That helps the algorithms, helps it get back out there again. And uh, I want to respect my guests. I want to get their stuff out there even more. I think that this is eminently important. And so I want to uh, I want to get as big of a platform for my guest's sake as possible. So please like, share, comment, all that good stuff. Awesome. Well, um, without further ado, let's jump into the philosophy of mathematics with Dr. Mark Colvin. Dr. Colvin, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me, Parker. Great to be here. Yeah, and so we we've had to do some coordination here because you are uh, you're a professor of philosophy at uh, the University of Sydney. So it's like nine in the morning for you right now. That's right. Yeah, <laughs> that's great. It's like five too, five p.m. here for me. The day before, too early, be, too early to be doing philosophy. Some would say, but, but let's try. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. Well, uh, Dr. Colvin, before we jump in, uh, I just wanted to get some of your story. How did you get into philosophy in the first place? I started out in uh, mathematics, uh, did a Bachelor of Science with, in, in pure mathematics, did a little bit of philosophy on the side, and um, you know, one thing led to another, and I, I turned to the dark side and ended up doing a PhD <laughs> in philosophy, particularly because I was interested in the more philosophical questions in mathematics, like what constitutes a proof, uh, what kind of logic should be using in mathematics, and I found that while mathematicians didn't ignore these questions, they're sort of part of a mathematical practice, the, the reflection upon those sorts of questions which, which most interested me led me, you know, small step by small step into philosophy. And uh, wow. when it came to graduate school, I was torn between going on mathematics and doing philosophy and eventually the tug of philosophy won over. <laughs> That's fantastic. Was there Was there a central... Um, a central problem in, in, in mathematics that kind of drew you into considering it philosophically or, or the, the meta level or something like that? Well, number of, number of things, actually. I mean, one was just the, the age-old chestnut of 
the realism issue in mathematics, whether what, what's mathematics about, you know, sort of yeah. it's one of those very simple to state questions. You know, physics is about fundamental particles. Biology is about living organisms. Geology is about the, you know, history of the crust of the earth or, you know, yeah. however you want to describe that. Mathematics is about dot, 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 you know, fill in the dots there. And it's extraordinarily difficult to do that. And so the natural realist position, which is it's about these mathematical objects and mathematicians are on a voyage of discovery to find out more about them. The alternative is, no, it's some kind of construction and mathematicians are kind of more like, you know, authors writing a novel, a multi-author novel, you know, as it were. And these two positions... You know, both have a lot going for them and both have serious problems. And that that intrigued me. And at the same time, um, the applicability of mathematics has always puzzled me. Yeah. That you can, come, coming particularly from pure mathematics as I, as I had, I had done very little applied mathematics and found it was just so surprising that this, the stuff that I had been learning in mathematics classroom and developed by mathematicians by purely a priori methods sitting down in their offices thinking turns out to be exactly what you need to do almost any science. Yeah. And that also kind of intrigued me. And again, the answers to that problem didn't seem to lie in the mathematics department, but they don't lie in the philosophy department either. That's the appropriate place to think about it, at least it seems. It's <laughs> great. Um, that's so good. So I, I wanted to get into, uh, I love those questions, by the way. Th- those are really good questions to be thinking through. And they've been plaguing me for a while, too, which is fun. Um, what I wanted to ask about, you know, what what is the philosophy of uh, mathematics? And then maybe the, the difference between philosophical mathematics and mathematical, mathematical philosophy. Um, is, is there a difference? Is the same thing here? Or are we just splitting hairs? Um. So I think I think a philosophy of mathematics is about the philosophical study of mathematics. So just like, say, philosophy of biology is about the philosophical issues that arise, that arise once one is studying biology, you know, questions about how you um, classify organisms, what is a species, what's, what's diversity, these are sort of questions that arise when you're doing biology. And there's nothing in a way that's distinctive, that's just philosophy. It's an interesting collaboration between biologists and philosophers, but yeah. there are certain questions that you find in philosophy of biology that uh, lean more on the philosophy side than on the biology side. But in order to do the the philosophy of biology, you need to be a good philosopher, but you also need to know the relevant biology. You can't just sit in your philosophical armchair and say, oh, biologists should do this, that, or the other. Yeah. So that's how I sort of think about the relationship between philosophy and their sciences when you're doing philosophy of X for some X where X is a science. And so philosophy of mathematics, I think of as the philosophical questions that arise from doing mathematics, you know, questions like what is a proof? What's the appropriate logic? What's the nature of mathematics? What's it about? Does that affect the logic, for instance? If you're a fictionalist about mathematics, you think it's a work of fiction, then should you be subscribing to a different kind of logic, to the logic that's actually being used, and so on and so forth? These are all questions that, again, are not exclusively the purview of 
philosophers, mathematicians think about these things as well, and it's a, you know, ideally a collaborative effort. Whereas mathematical philosophy, I think of as more using mathematical methods to solve philosophical problems. Mm. So uh, think of cases where you're using various kinds of mathematical methods, say from decision theory or game theory, to solve corporation problems to understand how language arises, how people can agree upon meanings of words. So in philosophy of language, there are these game theoretic models they're using mathematical methods to mm. solve philosophical problems about language, for instance. Or you might use, you know, decision theory, uh, again, mathematical methods to come to understand problems in various areas in philosophy. Um, Pascal's wager, which no doubt given your background would know very well, sure. that renders very well to a kind of decision theoretic um, formulation. And then you can get very clear about what the assumptions that Pascal was making and so on and so forth. So I, I think of mathematical philosophy as using mathematical methods in service of philosophy, whereas philosophy of something rather like philosophy of mathematics, I think of, sort of the direction is a little bit the other way. It's using philosophical methods to help us understand something about the nature of mathematics. Okay. Okay. Now, um, you, you talked about decision theory and um like if someone's doing hardcore like Bayesian uh, reasoning and stuff like that, does that, would that count as mathematical uh, philosophy? If someone's doing hardcore Bayesianism? Oh yeah. I mean, on, you, the people no doubt disagree about this kind of usage. Okay. And, yes. It's just, uh, you know, labels for things, but that, that's what I would think of as mathematical philosophy. Um, okay. Sometimes in an area of in, in epistemology, people talk about formal epistemology. Yeah. And, and formal epistemology, I think of as part of mathematical philosophy. It's using these formal methods, not always mathematical, sometimes, you know, logical, um, using modal logics, you know, epistemic logics like in the service of helping us understand what knowledge is. For instance, I think of that as, you know, part of this formal um, mathematical uh, approach to philosophy. Okay, but just not to say that that's an that's something you sign up for, and that's all you should do, or that's all philosophy is. You know, I just think it's a, a, a interesting tool one has in one's toolkit, and if your background is sort of more towards the mathematics and logic, you know, the old saying: if a, you know, the hammer is the only tool you have, the whole world looks like a nail. <laughs> well, <laughs> that's me a little bit. Yeah, yeah, that's great. All right, so we have uh, we got mathematical logic and uh, philosophy of mathematics kind of in view here, and that kind of sets us up nicely to talk about Gödel and uh, logicism. Uh, real quick, let's let's go on logicism first because I, I was really I really like this idea of um, reducing mathematics to logic, and then I found out that it's kind of kind of might not work. Um, can you give us what what is logicism, and then can you explain whether you think it it, it works or not? So logicism is the view that, that mathematics is just logic some, in some sense or other to be spelled out and the details needn't concern us here. But the idea is that, you know, we have a good grip on what logic is and if mathematics were just logic, we would kind of reduce, you know, two mysteries to one or something like that. And so the idea is that mathematical knowledge just is logical knowledge. You can formulate it in logic and you can just do it all with logic. And um, it's 
it's always dangerous to say that I think that that program didn't work because whenever you say that about any program in philosophy, <laughs> there'll be someone who still thinks that it can be worked and, of and course. push through with it. But it's it's uh, very very popular in the early part of the 20th century. Uh, but I think it's fair to say very few subscribers these days. Uh, yeah. In part because you might think that mathematics carries with it a uh, commitment to mathematical objects, at least on the face of it, right? So mathematics is full of statements like there exists a function such that or uh, the empty set exists or there, are infinitely, there is an infinite set. These sorts of claims yeah. don't look like they're part of logic. And so if you could reduce that to logic, you would get rid of that ontological commitment, the, the you know, commitment to these weird, spooky mathematical entities. <laughs> Yeah, but uh, I think it's fair to say it's generally thought that it it didn't didn't uh, work. Okay, okay, um, yeah, that's that's good. So that that was um, that's like the the famous proponents would be like Russell and uh, Whitehead. Is that is that fair? Yeah, and and Frege. Okay, starting with with Frege. Okay, yeah, I really like I like some Frege in my life. Um, okay, okay. Um, well, so. <clears throat> Moving on from 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 logicism to um, Gödel's incompleteness, and I've been looking to talk to someone about this for a while. I, I, I read up about it, and it was still tricky for me. But um, how would you classify Gödel? Is he uh, is he a philosopher? Is he a logician? Is he a, a mathematical philosopher? A philosophical mathematician? Um, all of the above. Okay, I think he's. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So primarily, I guess you'd think of him as a logician, but he did serious, you know, mathematical work, work in logic. His philosophical reflections on logic and mathematics were, you know, work of a great philosopher. So it's like always when you've got a, a major figure, um, every discipline wants to claim them. So if you ask mathematicians, he would be a mathematician. You ask philosophers, he's a philosopher, you know. So, yeah. But he, I think all of the above is the right answer. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Well, he's got these two uh, incompleteness theorems, which a lot of people say <clears throat> were just this huge moment in uh, in the 20th century. Can you help us uh, make sense of them? Like, maybe, which one should we even start with, the first or second? Uh, for, first, I think the second follows naturally from the first. So the, okay. the first incompleteness theorem simply tells us that if you formulate mathematics in a, you've got a a language that's rich enough to formulate basic arithmetic is all you all you require, and if you do that, then and the, and the system is in fact consistent. That's important. That's often left out in people's sort of gloss on it. That if the system is consistent, then there will be some sentence of that system that can't be proven by the system. So there's a blind spot, as it were in yeah. the system and moreover the blind spot is something that you can see yourself and recognize it as true and that's mm. the kind of that's the the kicker as it were so the sentence in question sort of you know easiest to formulate girdle so-called girdle sentence says of itself that it's not provable Right, so you can formulate statements like that in this language so this sentence effectively says i am not provable and clearly that's true because it's not provable. So it's true.
So you've got this true sentence of the system that's not provable. So the system can't, you know, can't see this as it were. It's a kind of blind spot in the system. And from that, but that's on the assumption that the system is consistent. Mm. It turns out from that, it's not too difficult to prove from the first incompleteness theorem. That's, you know, that there remains this, there's a girdle sentence of any such system that uh, one of the things that the system can't do is prove its own consistency. If it, in fact, it's consistent. Again, that's, a, that's the important clause there. So if the system's consistent, it can't prove its own consistency. So there was this great hope that you could formalize mathematics in some sense and then prove that it's consistent, given that there were these major events at the beginning of the 20th century when set theory was discovered to be inconsistent. Mm -hmm. So Russell's paradox and a bunch of other paradoxes arose around the same time. And they showed that set theory was inconsistent. And so set theory had to be reformulated. We now have the modern versions. We have several different set theories, but in fact, the sort of the, the, the generally accepted set, set theory, um, Mallow frankel with choice, we would like, hope, wish that it were consistent, but you can't prove that in the system. That's one of the results of that's Gödel's second incompleteness theorem, that it can't, you can't prove. You can hope that it's consistent. You can think that it's consistent on inductive evidence, like the, the problems that arose for naive set theory don't seem to be, you can't formulate those problems in ZFC. So mm -hmm. none of the known paradoxes give rise to inconsistencies in the modern set theory. But that's not a proof that it's consistent. That's just like there are no known problems, right? There could be one down the line, yeah. That's right. If someone says, I can prove that my computer program is bug-free because I haven't found any bugs so far. Right. That's not a proof that it's bug-free, right? So that's yeah. it. And moreover, what you'd think is you'd like to be able to prove that, you know, we're talking about mathematics here where, you know, proof is by far, you know, the, the thing we're always looking for, a proof of this, not just a guess or a hunch. Yeah. And Gödel's second incompleteness theorem tells us that if the system is consistent, you can't prove its own consistency. Ironically, yeah. you can if it's inconsistent. If it's inconsistent, you can prove that it's consistent. But yeah, that's, yeah. So some people take this as a kind of limitation of what you can do with mathematics. Um, and indeed, that, that seems right. Um, but you might think of it in this, these terms, there's a trade-off between consistency and completeness. You can get the completeness if you, if you allow inconsistent mathematics. Yeah. Um, and that's a road less traveled, but that's, that's really what the theorem is telling you. If you, what, if you. if you think of consistency as non-negotiable, then you can't have completeness. But if you take it the other way around, um, interesting, Interesting, though, less traveled roads open up. Yeah. So, so in logic, uh, if, if you're a classical uh, logician, uh, many would say that, you know, there's this principle of explosion that anything follows from a contradiction. But in a, in a mathematical system, you can have inconsistency without explosion because then you it, – it's what it seems like. You, you, you can have a complete system. And I would think if it's inconsistent, they would just explode. It, it depends on the underlying logic. So okay. the, the, still an interesting question about what is the underlying logic of standard mathematics. 
Um, mm. Most people say it's classical, but if you just look at the practice, um, it's not so clear that it's classical. So, for instance, when the contradictions arose, no one thought that proving from, for instance, the, the Russell paradox, which, um, you know, you formulate this set, the Russell set, and it's both a member of itself and it's not a member of itself. It's a contradiction. Yeah. And from that, you can prove anything, right, if, if you're using classical logic. Yeah. But the mere fact that mathematicians didn't do that is either a sign that they're not classical or mm. there's some kind of pragmatic um, considerations that come in on top of the logic. Right? It's not unclear what's going on, but certainly no one said, oh, given the Russell set, I can prove Fermat's last theorem in five lines. <laughs> um, we didn't have to wait for, you know, the, the, the Wiles 100-page proof later on. Right? We can do that in five lines right now. That, you know, that would either be seen as not a logical consequence, in which case it's not classical logic they're using, or it is a logical consequence, but it's somehow or other um, inappropriate to do that, which is some sort of pragmatic consideration. It's not, it's not clear why, but if you're absolutely right. If you're using classical logic and you've got inconsistent mathematics, you've got trivialism. Everything, okay. everything can be proven. So you don't want that. So if you're going to investigate um, inconsistent systems, such as naive set theory, for instance, then you need a paraconsistent logic is the bit of term of art for those sorts of logics that they just simply logics that will allow a contradiction without anything following from them. Okay. Sorry. Yeah. That's right. It's not the case that every sentence follows from a contradiction. Yeah. Um, there'll be at least one sentence that does not follow from the contradiction. That's all you require for a paraconsistent logic. Okay. This is good. This is good. Um, I think it was maybe Rebecca Goldstein. Goldstein. Um, she had a book on, on Girdle, and she talked about how the Girdle sentence is kind of like a similar type of reasoning to uh, to the liar paradox. Have, have, are you familiar with that? Have you heard that before? Has anyone else made that comparison between a Girdle sentence and the liar paradox? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it's the the sometimes called diagonalization. It's a kind of trick where you. you you know, in a nutshell, it's the kind of self-reference, like the liar sentence says of itself that I am false. Yeah. Right. And that leads to contradiction. The girdle sentence says of itself, I am not provable. It's the same. It's the same kind of uh, um, construction. Okay. And clearly girdle was thinking about the, the, the liar sentence and, and similar paradoxes and realized that, this was not actually didn't give rise to a paradox here, but gave rise to actually a really serious limitation of mathematics. Hmm. So that's that's the difference in the end. The liar paradox just is paradoxical. It gives rise to a contradiction. Girdle sentence doesn't give rise to a contradiction. Rather, it gives rise to uh, an interesting and um, not anticipated limitation of formal systems. It's it's so awesome. Yeah, and. Um... I love that. That that's so cool. Um, from from what I've read, it seems like the Girdle sentence, Girdle's incompleteness theorems, um, kind of crashed uh, David Hilbert's formalism. Do you, does does that sound right? Did, did he ruin formalism for uh, Hilbert? 
Well, the, the, the details of the Hilbert program, yes. I mean, again, formalism is not a particularly popular view these days, although there are, you know, again, caveat here, there are formalists around and there are re there's really interesting work going on. I don't, you know, I'm not suggesting that these people are crazy or like, <laughs> I mean, you know, they're doing really interesting work on formalism and trying to get something to work. And it's not that they don't know about Gödel's incompleteness theorems. Of course they do. And they're trying to work around it. But the details of Hilbert's program required, in effect, he required a finite proof of the consistency of mathematics. So he was a, a, he allowed infinite mathematics in his system, but he thought of mathematics as divided in two parts. There's sort of the finite part and there's the infinite part. Hmm. And the infinite part is acceptable if you can, can prove that the thing is consistent via finite methods. Uh, so he required a consistency proof, but also with one hand behind his back, right? He had to prove it via finite methods. What Gödel's incompleteness theorem says, you can't have it no matter how you do it, you know, within the system at least. You can't prove the, cons the system's consistency by finite or otherwise methods. Yeah. So that particular approach, the Hilbert approach to, to formalism, um, you know the details of that system, that that approach. I think it's fair to say that doesn't work in light of Gödel's results. People who would think of themselves as kind of Hilbert followers are trying to do stuff, the working around that. So it's not, you know, I wouldn't say dead, but it it uh, certainly put a big dent in the Hilbert approach, at least. Okay. Okay. Um... <clears throat> Why, why might someone go in for uh, for formalism? I, I think I've I think I've read somewhere um, that it's like it's like a advanced view on like the rules of chess. Like we invented this game of chess, but it's 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 similar thing for uh, for mathematics. That it's like it's it's a maybe social construction, and just up up a little bit higher. Um, why, why would I don't want to be rude to anyone's like. Uh, psychology or anything I, I just just curious like why why do you think someone would be uh, interested in in formalism well it has a has a lot going for it i think um it, it's spelled out in the right way it's a very attractive view i can understand you know i mean firstly it's sort of worth pointing out that david hilbert is one of the greatest mathematicians <laughs> who ever had Big lived, time. You know? right he's not he's, he's no fool he really thought that this was important to mathematics to put it on a firm foundational basis so he understood what mathematics was about and he thought that formalism was the best shot at this. Mm. And um, not only was he a great mathematician, he was he's a very, very astute philosopher. I mean, probably no one would call him that, but he's, if you look at his work, he was philosophically engaged with this problem about what is mathematics, let's put it on a firm foundation so we don't get those catastrophes of finding set theory inconsistent and the, and yeah. the like again. <laughs> let's get it sort of sorted out. Let's get the foundation sorted. So... He he saw formalism as the best approach, and there is a lot going for it. I mean, the idea is that mathem mathematics is largely about proof, working out what follows from what. Yeah. And so it's not so much about mathematical objects as such, which, which are, as I said, they're kind of spooky and hard to understand how you can have access to them, how can you have knowledge of these things that don't have space-time locations and, you know, Maybe we can talk about that a bit later on, but the yeah. problem of mathematical objects is a serious problem for anyone who thinks that mathematics is about these objects. 
Hilbert thought that well, if it's about the it's about what follows from what, it's just about the formal the the, the formal consequences of particular axioms, for instance. Then it's kind of like the rules of chess, right? No one says, "Oh, there's this big problem in chess. What is a rook?" <laughs> you know, no, a rook is just the damn thing that plays the role of the rook in the game and is defined by the rules of the game. That's all there is to it. Yeah. You can have a wooden piece that counts as the rook. You can have a piece of paper with rook written on it. <laughs> or people play mental chess where there's no actual object. It's just sort of a mental construction, right? Yeah. And that's what, you know, what follows from what, what moves are legal and what moves are not allowed and what arrangements of the pieces on the board are possible given so many moves. So all these are interesting questions in chess, but there's no, no one gets puzzled about what chess is about is just a bunch of rules and what follows from those rules. Yeah. turns out it's a really interesting and rich game. You could have other rules that lead to, you know, much less interesting games like, you know, snakes and ladders or something like that. But chess gives rise to a really interesting game. And so thinking of mathematics in those terms, it's a really rich and interesting set of rules. It gives rise to this fascinating, rich area, but it's ultimately the study of what follows from what. It's this, this formal rules about... If I have a symbol like this, I'm allowed to replace it with something like that, yeah. right? And it also pays great respect to the notation, which is one of the things I think is really attractive about formalism. Uh, mathematical notation is really, really quite important. Mathematicians have heated arguments about the best notation for this or that. And formalism tends to, th you know, one way of thinking of formalism is Mathematics is really not much more than just a notation, right? It's really yeah. about this notation, what you're allowed to write after you've written something like that and you've got an equal sign, what are you allowed to write on the other side? So it's really highly focused on these, these formal implications and on the notation. And I think a lot of philosophy of mathematics ignores notation for mm. things that are arose by any other name kind of thing. It doesn't really much matter what you call it or how you write it. Whereas formalism actually played a lot of respect to the notation and, and, you know, for what it's worth, that's one of the attractive features for me. I think, you know, I don't, I'm not a formalist, but it got that bit of philosophy of mathematics right. Okay. That's really interesting. I love finding those kind of things, uh, the disparity or, or discrepancy between the actual thing and the philosophy of that thing. Like, uh, like in philosophy of biology or something, or philosophy of science, the philosophers of science usually look for laws. And uh, and some of the scientists were saying, well, we're, we don't care as much about laws. We're looking at models. So it's interesting to find that kind of same kind of uh, similar phenomena in, in mathematics. So talking about notation and the philosophers of mathematics haven't paid as much attention. I, I love that. I think that's really cool because I think we need to do some more. Like I, I love uh, closing those gaps. I want to close those gaps. So I mean, it's um, the philosophers of mathematics are now paying a bit more attention, um, sure. partly because of the work of uh, James Robert Brown, uh, who has written some terrific stuff on mathematical notation and has some wonderful examples how, of how results in mathematics sometimes just drop out of the notation in a way that, that really quite surprising. I mean, I, I learned a lot from thinking about uh, um, some of James Robert Brown's examples, but he managed to convince me that that uh, notation is much more important than you know. And, and I was as guilty as anyone. I hadn't thought about notation very much at all, and uh, so I, I give credit where it's due here. Yeah, 
that's awesome. I love that. I'll have to check it, uh, out some of his work. And uh, yeah, this is really fun because now I have that in my head. That notation is important, and I can I can mark that. And next time I talk to someone, hey, what do you what do you know about notation? That's really fun. Um, are you familiar at all with with uh, with Penrose's use of of Girdle um, in the philosophy of mind? Yeah, that, well, it starts with uh, Lucas. Right? That's right. So the, the, yeah. the, Luke, the Lucas argument is that, um, in, a, in a nutshell, the girdle sentence can't be proven by the system, but me, a human, can recognise that it's true. Indeed, I can kind of prove that it's true because I can run through the options, right? It, it says that it's not provable, so if it said, what it says is the case then indeed it's not provable. And if it's what it says is false, you know, so you can run through this line of argument and convince yourself that it's, in fact, the Gödel sentence is true but not provable. And so Lucas floated this idea that, well, there's something that a human can do that a formal system can't do. Mm-hmm. So for this idea that, that uh, a human is just some sort of fancy computing device... Right, yeah. um, and this was back in the '60s, right? When computing was pretty primitive. I mean, most of our, you know, most of our laptops are more powerful than <laughs> most most machines that people were playing around with. Yeah. And so it was a very early sort of thought about compute, you know, com, com, the mind just being some sort of machine. And it was thought that okay, here's something that a human can do, pop, properly trained human. Not anyone recognizes the truth of the Gödel sentence, but it's not too hard. You can get you know, any undergraduate to see that it's true, then here's something that a human can do that a machine can't. And so, you know, in a slogan, the mind is not a machine, is yeah. the, the thought of Lucas. Penrose takes that a lot further with, you know, adding stuff about quantum mechanics and so on and so forth. But the, the basic idea that arises from the Gödel's theorem is that, you know, there's some kind of difference between uh, the human mind and a machine. Yeah. No, I think that's wrong. I think that's just straightforwardly wrong. But, but, uh, I mean, <laughs> that's where I was say, going for. Yeah, I wanted to get your, your opinion to, on that. And not to say that the, the, the mind is a machine, but rather that line of argument for why it isn't doesn't work, right? Yeah. So, for instance, it's very easy to get the, the Gödel sentence recognised, just have another system that has that girdle sentence added as an axiom. Right now mm. it's provable because it's an axiom, right? Okay. But that system will have its own girdle sentence, another girdle sentence. So the, the, the theorem says for any system of a suitable kind that's, that's consistent and is rich enough to formulate basic arithmetic, we'll have a girdle sentence. Now, the fact that I can recognise the, the first girdle sentence doesn't mean that I haven't got my own Gödel sentence. Right, right. Yeah, I might have mine, but I can't recognize my own. Yeah. I could recognize someone else's. That's fine. So there's nothing that says I can't recognize yours and you can't, that you can't recognize mine. That's fine. What you can't do is recognize that you that prove your own Gödel sentence. So the that, first, That's the first, self-reference. That's the whole point of it. Yeah, yeah so the first, first the problem with this line of thought, I mean, it's an interesting line of thought. I don't, I don't mean to... to sure, sure. Of, you know, to, to condemn it, I think it's actually really kind of fascinating sort of thought to throw up when you sort of see the girdle. It's very natural. When you first see Gödel's incompleteness theorem, you think, wow, all of mathematics, no matter what they do, they can't prove that. I can see it, you know. <laughs> I, 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 you know, there's something special about me. It's a very natural kind of thought. But 
you know, what this, the, all the, the theorem says is that the system cannot prove its own Gödel sentence. Now, nothing in Lucas or Penrose shows that you don't have your own Gödel sentence that you can't prove. That's the second thing to say is it has to be formulated in a certain kind of way and it has to be consistent. Whoever thought that a human mind is consistent, mm. right? I mean, huh. that's a really strong requirement. I mean, just think about your own beliefs about stuff. Um, yeah. You have kind of inconsistent beliefs, maybe compartmentalised. You know, I, I believe some facts about geography of my own city, just roughly which streets run. This is an example of David Lewis's, I think. Roughly which streets run north, south, east, west when you're in that particular part of the city. And then another part of the city, you have other beliefs about which streets run northwest. And then in the overlap, you find because you're approximating, you've got inconsistent beliefs about the direction of a particular street. Yeah. Right? That's very, very common to have those kinds of inconsistencies. And the fact that they're compartmentalised is neither here nor there. Your overall belief systems are surely inconsistent. Um, it'd be a miracle if we all had perfectly consistent beliefs, right? Yeah. So, again... You know, the fact that you can recognise a Gödel sentence in another system um, from another system which is inconsistent, it's also about deductive systems. We work probabilistically as well. We have yeah, sure. There's big, there are some differences between this kind of formal system and the human mind, but it's not, you know, I, I think there are better explanations for it than there being something very special about the, the human mind. Um, yeah. That's that's those are such good points. Um, I got to chew on those some more. That I really really like that. I, especially the yeah the girdle sentence recognizing someone else's. That makes so much sense. And yeah, we're not consistent. Wow. Okay. I'm gonna try not I mean, to get too hung up. Yeah. yeah. So you can, you know, for instance, you can just build a series of systems. You have a, a, a system that can't prove. You know, the, the system girdle had in mind with the girdle sentence. This sentence is not provable. Then just add that as an axiom to the next system. Now I can recognize that as a, as it's you know, as a theorem, because, you know, simple proof from axiom to theorem, you just promote it, but we'll have another Gödel sentence and add that to another system and then you get another system that has another Gödel and, you know, so you end up with this series of systems, each recognising the Gödel sentence of the previous one but not of its own. Yeah. And what, now I'm not saying that that is in fact what's going on with the, you know, the fault in the Lucas argument, but it's not excluded yeah. Lucas gives nothing to suggest that, okay, we've got our own Gödel sentences and so we're just like the machine. We've got our own Gödel sentence. We don't know what it is, but just because we can see someone else's doesn't mean that we don't have our own. Right. Um, yeah. So. Yeah. Well, um, that's I, I just believe. That's not excluded by the line of argument. Right, right, right. I think that, um, I believe that's Michael Glansberg's approach to holding on to classical logic in light of the, the liar paradox. And he says, well, we just move out we move out and each time we consider it, we have to move out another level, but it's, it's a similar type of thing. That's really fascinating. Um, and, and he's dealing with the liar paradox and we're dealing with this uh, girdle sentence, which has the same self-reference, which is really fun and crazy to think about, man, that's so cool. Um, well, okay. So we, we've got logicism. Uh, we've got formalism. How about in, intuitionism? Uh, can you, can you help us think through what that is and, and maybe whether you, uh, you like it or not? Yeah, intuitionism is uh, in some ways a really radical departure from standard mathematics. Um, 
it was first proposed by um, the, one of the great mathematicians, L.E.J. Brower. And funnily enough, Brower, uh, as one of his most um, famous results, a fixed-point theorem, was not something he was entirely happy with. Um, celebrated theorem, really sort of cornerstone of a great deal of analysis, this fixed-point mm. theorem. But he used non-constructive methods to, to, to deliver this result. And what I mean by that is, in mathematics, if you want to show that something exists, that there is a function that has some properties, one way to do it is to actually build the function and, and display it. Right. Okay. Here is the thing. I can prove that there is, you know, I can prove that there is an even uh, prime number. Two, here it is. I present it to you, <laughs> right? Yeah. And the other is to say, well, if there weren't, there'd be a problem. But I can't show you what it is. I can't show you the, the, the thing in question. I can just show you that <clears throat> suppose that there weren't an even prime number, then I, after the work, show you that you get a contradiction. It's that kind of an indirect, indirect way of showing things, right? Yeah, but you okay. don't ever display the actual thing that you're talking about. You sure. just show that you don't, there must be such a thing, right? Yeah. And that was the method that Brower used in this, this fixed-point theorem. And he became really unhappy with that style of proof because he thought, I, I want to be able to see, I want to be able to construct the actual thing. Mm. And this led him to the view that those kinds of proofs are illegitimate. In, in his view. And so what you needed to do was actually provide a constructive proof, by which he means construct the actual thing. If you're saying there is a function or there is a set or there is a, you know, a group, whatever it is that you're talking about in mathematics, then if you're making some existence claim about it, you must be able to produce it. And showing that were there not such a thing, there would be a contradiction that doesn't prove that it exists. That just proves that its non-existence is problematic, right? Yeah. And so he then set about trying to prove a bunch of results in mathematics and finding what, how far can you go with this program. And uh, what you end up with is a different logic. So it's not classical. I mean, we talked earlier about what the actual logic of mathematics is, is, is in some sense an open question. Hmm. But assuming that it was classical... This is a radical departure because what you require is an intuitionistic logic, as it's called. And this means that some of these theorems of you know, standard mathematics are no longer theorems. Uh, some can be reconstructed. Some can be proven by constructive methods. So you recover those. But famously, there are lots of results that you can't. You just cannot get via constructive methods. And so... Uh, intuitionistic mathematics is, uh, you know, in this sense, a radical departure because you, they actually disagree with uh, mainstream mathematics, let's call it, on yeah. whether something is a theorem or not. Okay, and 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 they're just cool um, biting that bullet and saying, well, so so much the worse for for all we've we've taken to see because you guys are using um, non-constructive methods and we have constructive methods. Yeah, there'll be a lot of a lot of agreement. So there's mm -hmm. a lot of agreement about stuff, but there will be some, you know, uh, cases where there is disagreement. And in fairness to the intuitionists, 
some of the disagreement cases are really puzzling results, right? Hmm. Um, so there's the the famous tarski barnack theorem, yeah. which allows you to, um, via non-constructive methods, the, the folk version is of it is take a sphere, so consider an orange. You can decompose it into a finite number of parts and put them back together and have two oranges of the same size that you started with one. You know, a way to feed the masses, if you like. Yeah, seriously. And so this result requires non-constructive methods. And it's sometimes called the tarski barnack paradox because clearly if you pull an orange apart and put it back together, you can't have two oranges of the same size. The tarski barnack theorem, theorem allows says that, that is, that's actually a result. You can do that. Um, the, the deconstruction is kind of tricky. It involves some non-measurable sets and some fancy stuff, but it's not as uh, it's a finite decomposition of the original sphere. And you can't get that result in constructive mathematics and constructive mathematicians say, yay. <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. Want that result? Yeah, and indeed, classical mathematicians have to begrudgingly accept this result because it's a theorem. But there's something deeply weird about the Tarski-Barnack theorem. Okay, yeah. So that yeah, that's a plus for them. Okay, that's really good. Um, okay, that's good. This is all so fascinating to me. I'm having a hard time moving on from it, but I, I want to get to uh, to Wigner and, and his unreasonableness, uh, the unreasonable effectiveness of mathematics. Um, he, he's, I pulled this quote from, from your book um, and I had, I, I'd read Wigner maybe uh, two years ago, his, his paper on this, but he says the, the miracle of the appropriateness of the language of mathematics for the formation of the laws of physics is a wonderful gift, which we neither, understand nor deserve and i think elsewhere he calls it oh no he's right there yeah it's it's a miracle it's miraculous it's crazy um what what's wigner really getting at why why is it so miraculous why does he he find it so miraculous um i love i love that quote by the way i he's, he's a fantastic writer wigner yeah. so wigner is a mathematical physicist he was um i, I think the, the paper even starts out with this very interesting folksy story where some friend who didn't know much about mathematics asks him what this symbol is and it's, it's the symbol pi for the the, the 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 ratio of the circumference to the diameter of a circle and he says what's it doing there and it was i i can't remember the details of it now but i think it was in a gaussian distribution and you know a, a normal normal distribution from statistics and asks him what that symbol is and and Wigner says, oh, that's the, that's pi. That's the, you know, ratio of the circumference to the diameter of a circle. And he says, what's it doing there? And he says, oh, that's about the distribution of grades or something, you know, normal distribution. And he says, oh, now, you, you mathematicians, you, you know, you just, that's really, you know, you, 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 you're making fun of me just because I don't know any mathematics, mathematics now. You're just kind of, uh. you're just having a go at me. That How could... The circumference of a circle, the ratio, the circumference, the diameter of the circle, have anything to do with student grades? You know, I, I'm really insulted. <laughs> and then I thought, oh, you know, actually, I can see what I can see the point. I mean, what does the ratio of a circumference to the diameter of a circle have to do with distribution of student grades? It's amazing that this pieces of mathematics turn up 
in certain kinds of applications. And so we then got thinking about this, like, you know, there, there is a genuine puzzle here that um, various ways to formulate this, but the way I tend to think of the core of Wigner's puzzle is that mathematics proceeds by largely a priori methods. Yeah. So mathematicians sit in their offices thinking up clever axiomatic systems and then proving theorems from those systems. And then it turns out that those things that they've developed in the privacy of their own offices is exactly what physicists require to do general relativity and quantum mechanics and biologists require to do evolutionary biology and so on and so forth. Yeah. And once you sort of think about it like that, it's, it's, deeply weird that this a priori discipline largely a priori i mean there are some the uh, you know uh, empirical methods used in mathematics these days but the bulk of mathematics is a priori and that that turns out to be exactly what you need to describe and understand the world and so it's the problem of this applicability you know Sure, if you're just developing mathematics for its own sake and you're driven by interest and elegance and mathematical beauty and, you know, all of these kinds of things, whatever they are, that's that's a whole other bunch of interesting philosophical questions. Right. But you're driven by some kind of aesthetic considerations in mathematics about what counts kind of interesting and beautiful mathematics, then that's what you need to do science as well. I mean... You could imagine it going the other way and thinking, okay, all that beautiful mathematics, fine, but it's just not applicable, right? Yeah. The world is a dirty, messy place and you need right. dirty, messy mathematics and we need to get the mathematics that suits the physics and so leave it to the physicists to work out the mathematics. And indeed, that happens a lot of the time. Not that you don't want to, I don't want to overstate Wigner's problems, not that physicists always go and knock on the door of a mathematician and there's the answer sitting on, you know, sitting on their desktop. Yeah. Uh, very often it is this cooperation where the mathematics was developed in response to needs in physics or in biology or elsewhere. But that it happens often enough that the answers are already there on the shelf in the mathematics department. Uh, that's what I think is the core of the Wigner problem. How is it that pure mathematics turns out to be applicable as often as it does? Yeah. Yeah. I love that. I love, I love, it's so fascinating. I, um, I want to ask you about different, different ways of, of, of thinking through, uh, Wigner's, uh, question, but I wonder just initially about like Zeno's paradox and, uh, there's so, some ways of getting around it or, um, the, the tortoise and the hare or Achilles, you know, there's this problem of, uh, it seems like you can never, motion's impossible, because if you ever cross any distance of space, there's an infinite number of divisible uh, spaces you have to first uh, cross, and so it's like you have to cross this uh, infinite, and some people just go, fine, you cross an actual infinite, whatever. Others say, well, no, that's because you're applying math in a way that is unreasonable. Um, you you shouldn't think of math as, uh, you shouldn't think of spaces as having, like, mathematical points in the, in that matter or something um what do you what do you make of that like counter claim that if we do apply math uh we we end up with xenos paradoxes like xenos uh it depends on which of the xeno paradox but take it to talking about the the, the infinite divisibility that one yeah. right and there i think actually mathematics solves that problem i think the, oh, the, wow. the, i think that xeno paradox is just uh um 
arises by not having a full understanding of limits in calculus. Okay. So fair enough at the time of Zeno because there was no calculus then. But now I think the, that the solution to that paradox is just that. So the, 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 the idea is for me to get from A to B, I must pass the halfway point of A between A and B, right? And for me to get there, I need to get to the halfway point and so on and so forth. And if space is infinitely divisible, then it looks like I need to make an infinite number of journeys in order to get from A to B. And an infinite number of journeys is impossible. That's the, that's yeah. the, the idea. But in fact, an infinite number of journeys, journeys is not impossible. Oh, sorry, put it this way. An infinite number of journeys is impossible in a finite amount of time. That's the sort of thought that runs behind the paradox. Yeah. Right? But in fact, what we learn from calculus is that's just false hmm. because the series of journeys uh, take the first journey to be one unit. The second journey we're considering is half a unit and quarter and an eighth and a sixteenth and so forth. The sum of that series, half, eighth, sixteenth, so on, so on, the sum of that series in modern calculus is one. So indeed, doing uh, all those different journeys gives you exactly the journey you wanted from A to B. Yeah. So you, uh, the, the, you've got to understand that, and then you ask, sorry, you ask the question, what, what's the amount of time it takes to do that, though? Well, the times for each of those journeys is take the first journey, the full journey to be one unit of time, half, so suppose you're, you're travelling at constant speed, half, quarter, eighth, so on and so forth. So what you need to do is do the limits, do, do, the, you know, do the relevant calculus here, and you get exactly the right answer. Okay. Now, again, you know, without calculus in hand, that does look like a serious problem, but I think the mathematics actually solves that one. So yeah, I think that's, that's awesome. I think that's, that's a case so good. where you know, the applicability works. And indeed, it was applications like that that motivated calculus in the first place. You know, okay. Newton and Leibniz, when they're developing the calculus, weren't thinking about, as far as I know at least, weren't you know, primarily focused on Zeno's paradoxes. But they were focused on problems in physics that had similar structure. Okay. You know, how, do you, how do you make sense of an instantaneous velocity? Right? With a velocity, you would think of it as being a displacement divided by a time. And if the displacement is zero and the time is zero, how do you make sense of an instantaneous velocity, right? Yeah. It looks like zero over zero, that's undefined, you can't make sense of it. So, you know, in many ways, calculus was developed in order to make sense of things like instantaneous velocities and, and the like. And that's precisely what you need to, you know, solve Zeno's paradox as well, or at least that, that particular Zeno's paradox. Okay. And... <clears throat> Would you would you say that we do cross an actual infinite then from getting to point from a from point A to point B? I, I think you you there is a sense in which you uh, undertake an infinite number of journeys. Interesting, um, okay. but that's just by dividing it up. I mean, you can think of right. it as each point, right? There is an infinite number of points between any two points. If if space has the structure of the real numbers, that's a that's an open question. But let's suppose. Okay. Which is the supposition of Zeno's paradox, right? Right, right. What, we're actually presupposing that you don't get the problem if you don't assume that to start yeah. with. So, assuming that, I'm allowed to use that in, as part of the solution as well, right? Okay. So, if space has the structure of real numbers, that is, that between any two points there is another point, and 
um, then yeah, you can kind of divide any interval up into an infinite number of sub-intervals, yeah. um, smaller and smaller and smaller. They can't just have each one with a minimum size, for instance. There'll be a finite number of those between any two points. But if you're allowed to divide them up xeno-like, right, half, eighth, sixteenth, thirty-second, and so on, then yeah, there are an infinite number of intervals there, and you traverse them all, getting from A to B. So yeah. there is a sense in which you undertake an infinite number of journeys, but um, you know, I don't see why that's problematic in itself. The thought, though, was to undertake an infinite number of journeys takes an infinite amount of time. Right. Right. That's just false because yeah. the journeys are getting smaller and smaller and smaller. So are the times, and so you can actually do that in finite time and they still add up to the same amount of time it would take to take that the the one journey up the the large yeah that's oh, yeah, so you, yeah you spell out the details of what your velocity sure. is and all the rest but you know but spelled out in the usual way the time it takes to get from a to b is exactly the time that you would think that it takes to, from a to b given the the, the the relevant velocity yeah that's really cool and it's it's on the supposition that that math does align with space in that way but yeah, if it does, that's really cool to think that we, you know, I'm going to go upstairs after this. I'm going to cross an actual infinite. That's kind of cool. It, it's it's cool that math is so applicable. I remember I had I had one uh, math teacher who was very into math, and he was like, everything's math. Uh, and he he would, he just would go through stuff and how applicable math is to life and how he's got two fingers or he writes two on the board and then he erases it and says, did I just destroy the number two? No, the numeral two. And he absolutely blew my mind. And I think it's so cool. I think Wigner's onto something here with the uh, unreasonable effectiveness of math, uh, mathematics. Wh- what do you, what do you make of it? Like um, there's a, you, in your book, you go over a couple different um, tactics for thinking through it. Some, some deny it's a f- uh, effectiveness. Others just say, you know, you, you get what you're looking for type stuff. W- what, what do you make of uh, Wigner's contention here? Uh, I, I mean, as I said, it was one of the things that got me into philosophy of mathematics in the first place, and it's one of those things where I feel like I'm no closer to understanding <laughs> solution than I was when I was an undergraduate student. Sure. And that's a good philosophical problem, I think, in a way, that you yeah. you know a lot more about it. I've thought about different solutions, and I still think that there's something deeply puzzling. Some people are just not puzzled by it. They just think, no, Wigner was kind of confused or, or, or whatever, and I... I just don't buy that. I think that he really was onto something. Sometimes the way he formulates the problem suggested that he was um, buying into a particular kind of mathematic philosophy of mathematics. So I think he uses some anti-realist language. So he says things like uh, mathematics was invented for such and such a purpose. And isn't it amazing that this invention, this kind of construction that, so he's, it sounds like he's thinking that mathematics is a kind of work of fiction. Yeah. And then you then you find that this work of fiction turns out to be a documentary, right? You know, that would be surprising, right? Right, so, right. You know, Tolkien writes these chronicles of Middle Earth and it turns out, well, there actually is a Middle Earth. And it does, you know, he, he, the maps at the, you know, at the front actually are accurate <laughs> maps of Middle Earth and, and it turns out he was writing a documentary all along. That would be deeply surprising, right? Mm-hmm. And so... There's some evidence to suggest that Wigner was thinking along those lines. And if he was, then I think 
that does presuppose some controversial philosophy of mathematics to get the problem started. But I, but I think the, the core of the problem is independent of what your philosophy of mathematics is, even if you're a realist, right? So mathematicians are not constructing works of fiction, but they're writing down actual truths about the mathematical realm. There's still a question of how that stuff helps physicists, right? Just because it's true doesn't mean that it's useful. Right. I mean, it's true that I'm, you know, sitting here talking to you, but I'd be really surprised if that's the thing that's going to solve the, the grand unified theory of quantum mechanics and general relativity, right? Yeah. Just because it's true doesn't mean it's useful. So understanding why this particular bunch of truths turn out to be so useful, that's still something that even a Platonist, someone who thinks that mathematical objects actually exist and that mathematics is about true statements of that mathematical realm, even the realist, I think, has some explaining to do about how those particular truths turn out to be useful. Maybe the problem's deeper if you're a fictionalist about mathematics, and, and yeah. some evidence suggests that Wigner was sort of thinking in formalist terms, I mean, not unreasonably because of the influence of Hilbert. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that, that's, that is a really good point. Yeah, and there's, like, there's, a, there's a fact of the matter, presumably, about the number of uh, quarks or something in the universe. But, you know, who cares? You know, like, that doesn't matter yeah. as much. There is a true fact, but, yeah, that, but the fact that... Or even more trivial things. It might be that sort of above a certain number, then you can get a universe like this, and below some number, you couldn't get a life, you know, life-permitting universe or something like that. So maybe the number of quarks actually does matter in some sense. Oh, yeah, okay. Not the actual number, but the, you know, that there'd be um, enough of them. Yeah, threshold. But other things, like just, you know, the number of number of incidents of the letter L in the, you know, the Sydney phone book. <laughs> there are such printed versions of phone books anymore. I guess they're not. Yeah. But in the old days, that was a kind of classic example of something that was, you know, there is a fact of the matter about, you know, that, but absolutely useless for any purpose whatsoever, let alone, you know, understanding physics. And yet right. mathematics, again, turns out to be... Um, important not just for physics i keep harping on about physics but it's important for all you know, pretty much all science so solutions to this um i that for those to start with for those who think that there's not such a problem I'm inclined to say well there's a fair bit of cherry picking here you mm. you're, you're highlighting on the you're highlighting the success stories and uh ignoring the failures and so of course it looks like you know, mathematics is remarkably successful. Um, logician Chris Mortensen, I remember asking me a question when I was talking about this in a seminar once, and he said, it sounds like it's, uh, uh, if I can rephrase Chris Mortensen's point, was it sounds like you're making a statistical claim, right? It, it happens more often than not, or it happens enough for it to be surprising. And so what you need to do is look at the proportion of successes to failures, the failures don't get published, right? They're yeah. the mathematical theories that led nowhere. And for the large part, they're in mathematicians' waste paper baskets. So mm. in order to get this claim that there's something really surprising here, you need to go through the waste paper baskets of all the mathematicians in history and <laughs> see that there were more successes than failures or there are enough successes for it to be surprising. You know, so that's, you know, that's... Uh, that that's, seems to me a, a, a reasonable kind of response. 
Although, even if it happens once, it's yeah, still right, <laughs> right, I still have this feeling. That's not an argument. That's just a fun feeling. Even if once a mathematician works out something a priori, and it turns out that that's exactly what you need for physics, that's surprising enough for me. And it surely it's happened more than once, right? Right. I think, yeah, just the fact that it's a priori and in the armchair is fantastic. Like the, 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 the a priori guys who keep hammering that they have to go, not always, like you said, they don't always have to go to the, the mathematicians, but sometimes they do. And in a lot of major ways, it's just so cool. And it's so interesting to think that the a priori should match up with the a posteriori in that way. And that there's a human in between it with just this, this i don't know eight pound whatever 12 pound uh gray matter and they're the ones seeing the connections and passing them along um it is really 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 fascinating and i i appreciate um the armchair uh way that mathematics goes about because like timothy williamson uh he he says he bolsters philosophy because of mathematics. If 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 you have a problem with armchair philosophizing, well, mathematics does a lot in the armchair, and so your your precious theorems go out the window as well. So let's not go too hard on the a priori folks. Yeah, I mean, there's there's a, a, certainly a place for a priori reasoning in in philosophy. I, you know, I, I'm not not for a moment suggesting that there's a problem there. What I'm opposed to is when I, earlier when I mentioned the armchair philosophizing, was armchair philosophizing about a particular area of science. Right, so, that needs to not be, yeah, that needs yeah, empirical I, data. I, I think if you're going to be doing philosophy of biology, you need to look at what biologists <laughs> are doing. You totally. can't just say, I don't care what they're doing, what they should be doing is this, right? right. That's that's uh, the kind of armchair philosophy I'm personally opposed to, and I'm not sure that totally. anyone you know really does that but same with mathematics yeah. you can you can um get a long way in philosophy of mathematics without knowing very much mathematics so some of the basic problems in mathematics really things like you know why is it that two plus two equals four you know what is that sentence about and again you open philosophy of mathematics textbooks and even research papers You'll find two plus two equals four as an example a lot of the time, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, and it is because the, the the problems start really, really early in basic arithmetic. But I also think that if you're a serious philosopher of mathematics, you do need to know a little bit more than basic arithmetic because you can be misled. The methods of arithmetic might not be typical for the rest of mathematics you need to know a little bit about what's going on elsewhere in mathematics yeah Um, as i said a lot of the basic problems are easily statable um particularly for an undergraduate course i mean in my textbook i try to focus on at least early on basic examples for people who you know mathematics that everybody would have encountered but I also try and stress that i think it's important to get grips with some of the higher mathematics because apart from anything else it's just cool and interesting you know? that's I mean, right how can you not you know how can you live your life and not know about the tusky barnack theorem it's that's a it's an impoverished life in my view <laughs> that's right that's right well i i really wish that i would have um taken a philosophy of mathematics course before i got into math because if i knew that there was all this cool stuff behind the scenes or undergirding i think i would have paid more attention in my math classes because now i'm trying to backtrack and learn myself 
Uh, and not just for like GRE type stuff, but just because it's fun, just because it's interesting. And because I see kind of the foundational uh, problems and questions. Uh, another, another. Uh, I wanted to finish up by, I, I, I got to ask you about realism. Um, I'm going to talk about indispensability probably um, because that seems like a, the major argument there. But uh, do you have a particular take on this? Like, are, are you a, a nominalist or a, maybe Aristotelian or a Platonist or... What do you think about like the foundation for mathematics or mathematical objects? Uh, I, I'm personally I'm a, a realist about mathematics. Awesome. Okay. Like a Platonist. Um, it's fair to say I think it's minority view these days. So okay. I don't wish to speak for other philosophers of mathematics here. There's a genuine divide on these issues. Uh, but the and the the reason that I am a Platonist is because of the indispensability argument, which is cool. due to Quine and in some moods Putnam um, Putnam certainly wrote on this but but later distanced himself from the Platonist sort of conclusion at least of the the argument uh, so the argument basically it derives from the applications of mathematics so it's not um, that the big unreasonable effectiveness in a way tells you you should be a realist but it's another kind of more subtle approach to um, understanding the nature of the applications that leads to Platonism. So the argument basically goes like this. If you're a realist about anything, why are you a realist? Well, you're a realist because the things that you're a realist about are indispensable to understanding the world, put it very broad terms, and in particular for understanding, you know, have a particular scientific uh, area of discourse. So someone who's a realist about electrons is a realist because if you had sub particle physics without electrons, it wouldn't work, right? right? Electrons are indispensable to our best theory of subatomic particles, right? And they do some explanatory work. They explain why we have lightning, why we have electrical currents, why you and I are able to talk to one another at such a distance right now. All yeah. of this would be absolutely inexplicable if we didn't have the, the, the theory of electrons. And the theory is committed to the existence of electrons. And so taking the science uh, seriously, you're committed to the existence of electrons. So, again, there are going to be people who are, anti-realists about electrons. Uh, there are philosophers of science who say, no, it's only the observable parts that we are uh, committed to. And the subatomic, unobservable stuff, that's the world behaves as if there were or something like that. It's sort of behave, they're a useful construction or useful fiction to sort of fill in the details of what it is that we observe. Set those people aside for a moment. There are some yeah. people who do that. But for the realist who thinks that I'm a realist about electrons, because they play an indispensable role in my best physics, okay? So then you just push them a little bit further and say, well, mathematics also plays an indispensable role in your best physics. And by your own lights, you should believe in all and only those things that are indispensable to your best physics, say, or your best science more generally. Then you're committed to mathematics because mathematics plays such a role in your best science. Yeah. And what you find is a lot of people are happy with the conclusion that electrons are real, very unhappy with the conclusion that numbers are real. Yeah. 
And what they want to say is that there's some kind of difference in the way that they're used in theory. Electrons have causal powers. They play an explanatory role. Mathematics just plays some sort of representational role. And what hmm. you should have said in the first place is not that I'm realist about electrons because they're indispensable, but rather I'm committed to electrons because they're indispensable in the right kind of way. Ah. And now, now I've got to say something about what the right kind of way is. And I'm inclined to think that however you spell out that right kind of way, I can tell you a story that mathematics is indispensable in that same kind of way. So one way that people spell it out is electrons play this explanatory role, an indispensable explanatory role in our best science. That's why I believe in electrons. More, more recently, the debate over indispensability has focused on whether mathematics can be, indis can be indispensable in this explanatory kind of way. Yeah. Can mathematics actually explain things about the physical world? And I, for one, think that it can, and that's... That's a minority view again. Let me flag okay. that. Okay. But, um, another philosopher of mathematics, Alan Baker, also holds this view. So there are there are a couple of us who think that mathematics can play this explanatory role in science. So the reason for something happening in the world is because, to put it crudely, the mathematics made it that it had to be so. Um. Another not all explanations like that, but there is a breed right. of explanation, if you like, that is for this mathematical explanation. And if there is such a thing, that's a big problem for those who want to be realist about electrons but anti-realist about mathematics because it looks like mathematics is doing some explaining. And if you're committed to all the things that are indispensable for explanations in science, then the mathematics is in there at the ground floor in a way. And that's that. That's my view. That's why I'm a realist about mathematics. Okay, I, I really, I really like that. It's intriguing. I um, I wonder. Does that mean you just need to change? Uh, we need to change our view on abstract objects and say, well, looks like they are causally efficacious at, at some point, at least mathematical uh, abstract objects. No, I, I, I'm. You could do that, and there again, you know, for for every thought one has about philosophy, there will be some philosopher that holds that view, Definitely. and there have been those who think that mathematical objects are in fact causally efficacious. Um, but that's not what I'm advocating here, at least. It's that rather that there are uh, kinds of explanations that are non-causal. Okay. So there can be so causal explanation is one kind of explanation. Why did why did the you know the red ball go into the corner pocket? Well, it was hit by the cue ball at such and such momentum, so on and so forth. That's a causal explanation. Mm -hmm. But sometimes their explanations are not causal, or at least the causal component of the explanation is not what you're interested in, like grounding uh, or something, right? Uh, I. I have less of a grip on what grounding is than I do on mathematical <laughs> explanations. So I'd rather stick to mathematical <laughs> okay. explanations. So think of, uh, for instance, um, the, the, the rings of Saturn. The rings of Saturn have these gaps. If you look at the rings of Saturn on an image, you'll see these black bands in the mm. rings of Saturn. They're gaps where no particles, no dust particles or small small pebbles, whatever, mostly dust particles, I think, ice particles, where there is nothing, right? That's what those black bands are. 
very characteristic. They're kind of wide ones, narrow ones, all at fixed, you know, uh, fixed uh, uh, distances from from Saturn. And if you ask for the causal explanation for why those gaps are there, what you'll get is um, a history of every particle in the universe and why it ain't there, right? That's <laughs> yeah. explanation you could have, right? Why... Yeah. Why aren't there any particles in one of the particular bands? Well, because all the particles are elsewhere, right? That's right. That's true. But it turns out that the explanation for why the gaps in the rings of Saturn are there are to do with harmonic resonances. And that's spelled out via the, the, the mathematics spectral analysis. Wow. So the mathematics can actually predict exactly where those rings will be, the widths of them, gives you the details of all of those gaps so they kind of have to be there whereas if you're only in possession of the causal explanation you can imagine saying oh well it's just like a coincidence that nothing's there so i'm going to set you know i'm going to set a couple of particles uh, you know into one of the into one of the the uh, uh, bands the unstable bands and you'll fail and the mathematical explanation tells you that you will fail but the causal explanation doesn't. Causal explanation yeah. makes it look like it's just a mere coincidence, you know, just like, you know, uh, you know, why isn't there someone standing behind you right now? Well, there's just that, you know, all the people in the universe, in the, in the planet are already accounted for and none of them are standing <laughs> behind you, right? That's, that's all there is to it. That is just a contingent explanation where there's nothing deep. I mean, I presume there's nothing, you know, no reason why people would never want to stand behind you or whatever, right? It's just right. a fact about no one standing behind you right now. Whereas the mathematical explanation tells you that that just can't happen. It's an impossibility or it's very, very low probability at least. Yeah. And so there's an example of a mathematical explanation that runs parallel with the causal explanation, but it gives you a lot more than the causal explanation. So I take it that the full story about the rings of Saturn is a non-causal mathematical explanation, or at least the mathematics is, yeah, as we sometimes put it, it's carrying the, you know, it's it's carrying the explanatory load. It's, it's yeah. doing heavy lifting here, whereas the causal stuff is not that it's false. It is true that everything in the universe is elsewhere, but the mathematics tells you and it had to be. Yeah, it tells you why. And that's, I think, what really explains it. You think, okay, now I understand why the rings of Saturn are as they are. It's because of the relevant mathematics here. And it doesn't really matter about the particular velocities and momentum of individual particles. All of that initial conditions of the Big Bang, all of that stuff is kind of irrelevant. Given the configuration of Saturn with its moons, there have to be, there have to be gaps in the rings of Saturn as they are. Yeah. So I take it that that's a mathematical explanation and it's non-causal. Yeah. Right. It's not yeah. like the mathematics is causing bumping things around or pushing particles out of the way or, you know, mathematics is just not the right kind of thing to do that. It just tells you something about what's possible and what's necessary and what's impossible and the like. Yeah. And a lot of the explanations have that kind of flavour. Such and such is the way that it is because it had to be that way. Well, such and such is the way that it ha is because it couldn't have been any other way, you know. So you often get mathematical explanations that have that kind of form. Yeah. Man, this is – that's you blew my mind going with Saturn there. That was so cool. Um, so 
I wanted to finish up uh, just by thinking through Benesaref, the Benesaref's dilemma. And this is nice because you're a Platonist yourself. Um, I'm, I'm a Platonist too. So, you know, we can be friends here. I like that. Um, but there's this problem for uh, for Platonism. And that's like, if I I think for Benesaref, it's he was saying, if we want uh, legit mathematics, then we're going to have to be Platonists to say that we actually are studying real things. And uh, that's... Uh, seems like they're indispensable for our theories, but then we have this weird epistemology then where it's like, how can we, if we, you know, evolved on this earth in a certain amount of time, how can we have, how do we know about these uh, non-spatial, non-temporal, non, uh, like, you know, causally inert or inept uh, things? How is it that we know about them? Uh, does that sound right? Is, is that a, like, maybe you can help me with the characterization of Benesaref's dilemma. No, that, that's, that's, that's exactly right, I think. So, I mean, the, the Benassarev dilemma was actually twofold. The one was for the Platonists, there's this problematic epistemology. So if you yeah. believe in mathematical entities, they're not spatiotemporally located, they're non-causal, they're these abstract entities. How is it that you could have knowledge of such things? So even if they existed, let's sort of put it that way, even if yeah. there were such things, how on earth would we know about them? Because all we can know about is stuff that we can causally interact with. And on the other side, the big problem for the nominalist, so in this same Benassaref paper, this is why it's a dilemma. If you're a nominalist, you've got a problem. If you're a Platonist, you've got a problem. The nominalist problem was how do you make sense of uh, providing what you might think of as uniform semantics across mathematical and non-mathematical discourse? Yeah. So um, you want to say that Chicago is larger than Santa Barbara. Right, in the appropriate sense of larger area or population doesn't much matter, right? Uh, yeah. Chicago is larger than Santa Barbara, and that's true because there is this thing called Chicago and there is this thing called Santa Barbara, and Chicago is bigger in the relevant sense than Santa Barbara, right? Seven is larger than two, right? What you want to say, well, there is this thing called seven and there is this thing called two and seven is larger than two in the appropriate sense. You want to give exactly the same kind of story because the sentence has the same form. But anomalist has got to say there is no seven and so either seven is greater than two is false because there is no seven or it's true for some different kind of reason and I have to take, provide a completely different semantics for that sentence just yeah. because... It's about mathematics, even though I agree that it has exactly the same linguistic form as the Chicago Santa Barbara sentence, I've got to pull it out and give it special treatment. So I can't provide a uniform semantics. But Asraf says, that's bad. You'd like to be able to have a semantics that worked on the structure of the sentences in question and didn't require you to have, you know, special pleading for mathematical cases. So that's the problem for the nominalist is providing this uniform semantics. The problem for the Platonist is about epistemology. How is it that we can have knowledge of abstract entities? Yeah. And uh, Asaraf formulated the problem in terms of causal theory of knowledge. So he's, at the time, that was the, 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 the dominant view, which is you have knowledge of something by coming into causal contact with either the... the the state of affairs, the facts in question, or you come into causal contact with someone else who has come in causal contact, you know, so you've got some sort of causal chain that leads you to the, 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 the uh, entities in question. Mathematics, that's just not possible because on the standard account of mathematics, 
it's about these abstract entities that don't have causal power, so you can't have causal contact with them. So first response is, well, the causal theory of knowledge is uh, problematic and became problematic, recognised as problematic not long after Banasaraf wrote his famous paper. But still yeah. the problem sort of persists, though, you know, there's a thought that, well, while he talked about causal theory of knowledge, there's still a puzzle here. I mean, the way that the philosopher of mathematics, Hartree Field, puts it, the core of the problem is to explain the reliability of mathematic, mathematicians' beliefs. If they have beliefs about this abstract realm, why is it that they're reliable? Yeah. So it, we state the problem without relying on any particular um, causal theory of knowledge, just some sort of general reliability requirement here. And that is a puzzle. I mean, it, it's... it's um, there are things one can say about it. I'm not sure I can say anything sensible in you know, a couple of minutes, but it is a deep problem. I mean, it's something that I think every Platonist struggles with, uh, trying to provide something that looks like a, a, a decent epistemology for Platonism. Yeah, is I would imagine a, a pretty popular approach would be abductive, you know, just inference to the best explanation. They... They make sense uh, of our theories. So it, it, is, is that popular? Is that a popular method? Yeah, I mean, my, my view is along those lines. I think the reason I'm a Platonist is because of the indispensability uh -huh. argument. So mathematics plays this indispensable role in our best scientific theories. And so every time you confirm a scientific theory, then you're confirming, if not the whole theory, large chunks of the theory. And so my, math my mathematics is being confirmed along with the rest of the science because it's a, it's a package deal, right? Yeah. And so that's about confirmation of the mathematics, but that's a um, small step perhaps from there to saying, okay, now I have some justification for the reliability of the mathematicians or, or I have... I have some reason to think that the mathematics that I'm signing up to uh, is I, that I have knowledge of that because I have knowledge of it in exactly the same way as I have knowledge of other abstract parts of science. You know, yeah. Um, that there are that there are gravitational waves, even when you know they're never detected. That we know that there are gravitational waves because the general relativity is confirmed and gravitational waves are a consequence of general relativity. So yeah. we know that there are gravitational waves even if we don't detect them, I think. I mean, it'd be nice to detect them, you know, but I think there is a sense in which you can say we're, we have confidence that there are gravitational waves because they are a consequence of our best scientific theory about space and time. Mathematical entities are also playing such a role in our best theories of space and time, so I have confidence that I've got that right. What that leads to, though, and this is a kind of separate, kind of related problem, is you end up with this two-tier approach to mathematics. The bits of mathematics that get applied, you have solved the Banasaraf problem, arguably, for those bits, but not the rest. Yeah. So you end up with, you know, the the the, the applicable bits of mathematics, uh, having reason to believe in that. Maybe, just maybe, I haven't fully fleshed that out, but maybe you can spell out a solution to the Banasarav problem in such terms. But it looks like it only goes so far as 
the mathematics that actually gets applied. And sadly, that's not all of mathematics. Yeah, so, the the Brower and the intuitionists come through and say, "Well, show me. You have to show me." Yeah. So the higher reaches of set theory, for instance, that that you know, applicable for other bits of set theory, maybe, but it's not clear that physicists are ever going to need that or biologists are ever going to need that. Yeah. And so what you end up with is, is this uncomfortable kind of divide in mathematics between the applicable and the non-applicable, and you've got two different stories about that. <laughs> and, you know, again, you know, putting my hand up here, that is a problem for people like me. You need okay. to, again, you need to, I think you need to address that. Okay. So so you, you, I've told you a little bit about my background in, in theology. I wonder how ridiculous it would be if someone said, well, look, you know, we have this Benesseraf problem. We have Wigner's, uh, you know, unreasonable effectiveness of mathematics. We got Platonism. What is it? It doesn't seem like a far jump to say, well, maybe an inference to the best explanation is that there's a, a God who designed the world. Mathematics, maybe you'd be going for divine conceptualism regarding mathematics. Uh, he designed or she, you know, God designed the, the universe um, and then designed us to think that way. Yeah, what you, does, does anyone try that? Does is that maybe this doesn't have a lot of explanatory problem uh, power when you get into the actual mathematics of it, but it's a higher level kind of question. What, what do you make of that? Yeah, so the, the, one of the um, really major figure in philosophy of mathematics and and uh, philosophy generally, uh, Mark Steiner, who who sadly passed away a couple of years ago, um, one of the uh, early casualties of COVID-19, sadly. Oh, wow. um, so Mark Steiner has this wonderful book on the applicability of mathematics. And he all but draws that conclusion <laughs> that there's a kind of design argument in here. So he starts with the Wigner problem, trying to rehabilitate the Wigner problem, that philosophers had not really paid attention to it and trying to um, really put it in modern terms in such a way that there really is this serious philosophical problem. And, and his work had big influence on me. I, I read Steiner's work on this and thought, he's absolutely right. I'm with him on this. All but the conclusion. He goes all the way to kind of... Um, it looks like it's a big put-up job, right? It looks like the world was kind of designed in such a way to be a kind of mathematical world where mathematical, you know, theories would be exactly the kind of things to actually, you know, understand the world. And, and you know, again, just speaking very loosely here, you can think of, you know, imagine a world where mathematics was useless, you know? The world was just too kind of crazy, just shit yeah. was happening all over the top place, you know? And yeah, just, yeah, yeah. No kind of coordination and mathematics was just, you know, um, it looks like the world was sort of, you know, set in place to be a kind of mathematical realm. And you know, there's one sort of small step from there to, well, you know, there is this uh, designer who was a master mathematician, right? Designed this mathematical realm. And Steiner all but sort of draws that conclusion. He's, he's you know, clearly heading in that direction, but leaves the conclusion kind of hanging a la kind of, you know, Alfred Hitchcock, you know, just a little, <laughs> a little bit of suspense at the end. But yeah. he he clearly believes something along those lines that the the best explanation for why we have this applicability of mathematics and why the world itself is so um, mathematically sort of um, structured is that there was a kind of 
it was designed to be so. Yeah. Yeah, it's fascinating. Man, this... I, I, I don't sign up to that. But, right, right. Uh, but yeah. you're, that, that's, I take it, the line of thought you're, you're pushing and, and you have, you know, a, a prominent philosopher on your side there with Mark Steiner. Yeah, I'll have to I'll have to check that out. That sounds really fascinating. We we've covered so much and yet uh, so little of your your actual book here. There's there's so much to it. It's a it's an introduction to the philosophy of mathematics. Mathematics. So naturally, you cover a lot. But it's it was really it's really really helpful. Um, getting uh getting your feet wet, and yet it's not it's not boring. It's not trivial. It's not trite. It you still get in deep, but in a way that was really, really helpful. So I appreciate the book. Thank you for, for writing this. Um, I think it's from back in 2011. Um, still awesome. Yeah, so mathematics is uh, kind of timeless, and that's nice. Um, so, so uh, Dr. Colvin, thanks thanks so much for your time and for your book. If someone wanted to find out, uh, uh, read some more of your work or listen to more of your work, do, do you have a, a website or anything like that where people can find your stuff? Yeah, I have a website. A lot of, a lot of my papers are on the on the. You know, on, on a research page, um, if you just search for Colvin, you'll you'll find it. It's not too difficult. Okay. Um, yeah. yeah so thank you, and thanks for your kind words about my book. It's nice to know that you know they're, they're doing some good out there. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I, I'll put the link um, to your website in the description, so folks, you can find it there, wherever you're getting this podcast at. And again, the book is an introduction to the philosophy of mathematics by Mark Colvin, and it's uh, one of the Cambridge introductions to philosophy. Definitely recommend it. Really great book. Um, I obviously need to to read more uh, and and bone up on my philosophy of mathematics, but this is a good start. So um, that's going to have to do it for now, folks. This has been Parker's Pensies, and as always, all glory to God.